This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Welcome to the Voice San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice San Diego. And I'm joined, as always, by Andrew Keats, managing editor of Voice San Diego. What's up, Andy? Scotty, what's up? Andrea Lopez Villafania is out this week. She'll be back soon. Coming up on the show this week, the best PolitiFest recap show ever. Maybe the only one we've ever done, but that doesn't make it not the best. Andy and I come through all of the awesome PolitiFest content to bring you some highlights, not all of them. There's too many. We'll talk about the sheriff's debate, the debate uh, for the city council seat in District 6 of the San Diego City Council. And I had the hot tea panel, talked to some people who gave us a little bit of an insider take about City Hall. And of course, the big discussion about homelessness. We've got a lot to say about each we're going to play some of the mini clips, again, of the many, many hot takes at the stages of PolitiFest, which was the region's coolest public affairs summit held at the University of San Diego. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Andy, what was that, like your sixth, seventh PolitiFest? Jeez. Yeah. I was I was away from my honeymoon for one of them, so I missed one yeah. with, in my... In my time here at Voice. You might have missed the one that was 180 degrees. That was the one I missed, yeah. With, with featuring the candidate for... Neil Kashkari? <laughs> no, I actually was there for that one. Oh, yeah. okay. I missed the uh, the the one, what do we do now? Oh. <laughs> right after Filner resigned. Yeah. That was good. We had like eight city council members and other interesting people. Just like, just like what do we do now that Filner has completely... Remember, that was still... He wasn't done... But he was done. Yeah. And so we had to decide, are we like going to characterize it as he's gone and we're going to go forward? And and we didn't, he didn't come. No one could, we, we couldn't acknowledge that a mayoral race was about to happen. Yeah. So we got everybody who we thought might run for mayor yeah. on the same stage at the same time. Yeah, it was good. Some of whom did in fact run for mayor, one of whom became mayor. Yeah. And others who... Decided not to run for mayor, or if you were to listen to them at the time, never gave it any consideration, yeah. and uh, we're just there to have a big, important conversation. That was about still the in the, the in the like dunk tank phase of Politifest, yeah. where we were trying to make it an outdoor festival. Yeah, now it's just a like indoor symposium, <laughs> like seven right. hours. But there was also Politifest South, and I want to give a shout out to our friends at the Emo Brown Foundation, Emo Brown Podcast. What a great facility that was! Great time. We had the debate for National City and the debate for Chula Vista mayors, and I thought it, they went great. Uh, you have those recordings in your podcast feed. Check them out. Uh, they uh, it was a fun like boxing ring type setup. It was just a, it was good good vibe. Yeah, theater in the round. Okay, if you, if you don't want to be a meathead about it. Okay, fine. <laughs> 
Thanks. You could have corrected me before <laughs> the eight times I've said that already. They're both right, man. Okay. It's fine. All right, let's kick this off. Number one on the highlight reel for this discussion, we're going to start with the sheriff's debate. This was moderated by Ted Garcia at Kogo, mm-hmm. AM600 Kogo. I was the host, so I, was, I got to watch it. There was a couple of moments that really stood out. And I think characterizing this entire show, we should say, is uh, that they said a lot of things on stage that they either assumed or knew that I found, and I don't mean just this sheriff's debate, I mean the whole event, that I found insightful and interesting as like pieces of news or sort of insights on how the world works. Like the status quo that they're willing to acknowledge just by nature of the way they answer yeah, questions. Yeah, and so this was, yeah. a, this was an example of the sheriff candidates talking about something that was assumed and that is part of life that I found jarring, even though it's not surprising. People get messed up with that they're like why are you surprised that's happening always happens if stop writing that on twitter stop writing yeah why are you surprised stop saying (laughs) are are you surprised at this no i'm not that doesn't mean it's not interesting or rather like jarring right okay so here was a perfect (laughs) example this is current under sheriff number two at the sheriff's department the sheriff of course oversees uh, the law enforcement officers for every area outside of cities that don't have that that do have their own police departments and for the cities that contract with the sheriff to have their own police department. There's a mm-hmm. lot going on. And they run the jails. And there's a lot of discussion about deaths in the jails. And here was Kelly Martinez, the uh, undersheriff, number two at the sheriff's department. She's a Democrat running to be the sheriff. Here's what she said about the deaths in the jails. We're doing a lot to uh, stop the supply of drugs in our jails. There's more that we can do. Some of that's gonna involve more staff, which we are actively working to increase. We've got, uh, we do searches uh, of everyone who comes into our custody. We have body scanners. We scan individuals who come into our custody. We have canines and drug sniffing dogs. We have a dedicated investigative unit that works on uh, drug interdiction in the jails. We've moved all of our mail to a central processing center because we know that drugs are getting into the jail through the mail. 19 people this year have died in the jails. All but one were overdoses of fentanyl. And what she's describing there is all the things they are doing to stop drugs from getting in. And yet this, these, this level of death is occurring, which means the level of use is much higher, right? So it's like, I, this is one of those things, again, it's like, it's, it's accepted, it's, it's known, it's assumed, and it's just really jarring to think about that all of these things are happening. Body scanners, drug-sniffing dogs, a dedicated investigative unit that works on drug interdiction in the jails, mail processing center uh, uh, oversight, and more staff, and yet the, the, the jails are just being flooded with this dangerous drug. Yeah, it doesn't exactly leave much um, much optimism about keeping the drug outside of people's hands who are not in jail. <laughs> right. Yeah, <that's, laughs> I, there's all these there's all these takes on on Twitter or social media where it's like these like mini owns, yeah. you know, and I hate them. But there's one that really works, and that's the one that says, "I don't know how you expect to stop." drugs from getting in the country with a wall or whatever when you can't even keep drugs out of jails right like it's which are much more highly concentrated and, and protected facilities yeah I, I i feel listening to Kel, to kelly martinez listing all the things they're doing there like like jeff goldblum in jurassic park and all i could say is that uh drugs uh find a way yeah <laughs> they, they find a way, you know, and and they can't. They they they're doing all these things, and they can't stop it. It's the 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 deaths are spiking, yeah, and they're doing all these things. And it's like you said, like again, these are places where, like, if you escape, you said this the other day. I thought it was great. If you escape from a jail, like, it's like historic. Yeah, you are a, a legendary are, figure. These people are, will will write folk songs about you in a hundred years. <laughs> these are places that are so secure that that's the case, and yet 
they can't even like come close to stopping the drugs from getting in. And that's, that implies not just that people are sneaking them in like who are civilians, but that there is an, there is an element of corruption happening. There are people who work there, probably uniformed officers, who are making this possible too. I mean, I don't really see any other explanation, right? Right? Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. a, one of the classic fasc- fascinating things that this is happening. Everybody's talking about it as though it's just normal. And yeah. it's, 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 it's just, it seems like a huge deal. Yeah, it is. Her opponent in the race, John Hemmerling, mm-hmm. he's the former leader of the criminal unit of the San Diego City Attorney's Office. So the city attorney is the only other prosecutor in the region other than the district attorney the city attorney does misdemeanors violations in city of san diego that's right everything else uh, misdemeanors and felonies outside the city of san diego and felonies inside the city are prosecuted by the district attorney now he was in charge of that for the city attorney and he had to resign or he chose to retire after he made some inappropriate comments about trans individuals, right? right? Mm-hmm. And the UT went so far as to withdraw their endorsement of his sheriff campaign. And then he immediately said, I'm retiring from the city attorney's office. Also intimated that these two things were not related. Right, that he didn't do that immediately. He'd been planning to do that. But it was effective immediately. It was <laughs> effective immediately. Okay. Ironically, he's running to the left like every major point that they talked about up there, he was trying to go to her left. Hmm. The jail deaths were unacceptable. He was very supportive of unauthorized immigrants and the laws that protect them from local law enforcement accomplishing or being an accomplice to uh, national immigration enforcement. Uh, he talked about every major issue. And then one that stood out was the gun violence restraining orders. The San Diego City Attorney's Office has taken a really ambitious approach to gun violence restraining orders. So if somebody's you know, a threat that they can establish to uh, neighbors or, or their family or their workers or whatever, or if they're, they're somehow mentally unstable that in a way they can establish, you can file and often get these gun violence restraining orders and take their weapons. Right. And the city attorney's gotten all this attention from this nationally. And here was John Hemmerling really trying to drive this home. And as I've always said, the best way to protect our constitutional rights for everyone, responsible owners to bear arms, is to, to make sure that whenever we find someone who is conducting criminal behavior or those that are posing a grave sense, significant risk to our community, we take their firearms away. I have been a leader in this. Most recently, the Attorney General was here and he, and he lauded the program at the City Attorney's Office on how they've approached gun violence. That's a program that I started. It's a statewide model on how to address gun violence. So this was interesting to me because he is running as a Republican. He's got the support of the Republican Party. He's on all the slates for the Republicans. Like the former city police chief, Shelley Zimmerman, supports him. Republicans, It's he, he is identified and part of that Republican movement. And here he is talking about the very progressive Democratic attorney general coming down and supporting his program to take firearms from people that they suspect of being a danger to their community in a way that a lot of First or Second Amendment advocate folks do not like at all. And in fact, they, the most prominent group of them, support his opponent, Kelly Martinez. I thought it was just an interesting reality of how this race is playing out that he's he's trying so hard to go uh to the left and and it looks like in an authentic way he really believes in it. yeah he i mean he also he got the support of dave myers who ran against both of them in the primary and was trying to stake out the left leftmost position among that group of three he now supports hammerling the republican yeah. um they so, asked by the way they asked yeah. about that on the debate okay. stage and kelly martinez's response was so funny she said, yeah i didn't want that <laughs> it was. She said, "Like I'm, I'm happy he got it because I didn't want that." I wonder if that. I imagine that was rehearsed with their consultant ahead of time. It you felt know, very just like genuine. Gentle. Like she was just like yeah. she obviously has deep disdain for Dave Myers and would not want his endorsement. Yeah, I mean, I like I think in general 
the new doctrinaire view about elections in San Diego still basically hasn't come for the countywide seats. Right. You know, like the the uh, the ascendance of the Democratic Party seems not to have locked in yet in right. in for those seats. For the for district the, attorney, treasurer, tax collector, assessor, and sheriff. And sheriff, exactly. And Kelly Martinez is a Democrat, although that is still relatively new. And it doesn't seem like she's going out of her way to affiliate herself with like the most progressive opinions and positions on in, in the Democratic Party. No, absolutely not. She's so very, we're very much like tiptoeing our way into the hot tub of of democratic uh victories at at the countywide level yeah the next panel i had was i this is one i moderated was this panel i called the the hot tea panel but it was just mainly a discussion with um, bridget browning the leader of the labor council mm-hmm. in san diego so basically the union of unions the the leader there Ryan Klumpner, political consultant, and Francis Barraza, um, uh, the Republican chief of staff of, uh, of city councilman Chris Kate. So, Former staff for Mayor Faulkner. Yeah, and to that point about the Democrats and Republicans or whatever, Browning said that even though Democrats have taken over a lot, that she actually feels like it might be harder for them to get what they want because so many what might have been former or what might have been Republican in the past are becoming Democrats mm-hmm. and locking up a lot of fundraising in a, in a moderate way and, and finding success. And she says that's actually harder for her to deal with than when they were just straight Republicans. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so here's a clip, though, of something else. This was another sort of thing that's happening that she said that I hadn't realized was so pervasive or just normal. And here's what she said about, so I asked her about how they organized workers into a union at the Town and Country Hotel. Now, the Town and Country. This is, this is a good place for the, the Scott Lewis uh, institutional knowledge of San Diego politics. Yeah. The, so, the, what the Town and Country represents as a, as a newly unionized hotel. Yeah, I think it. it up until recently, that is where, if not still, where the Republican Party itself met, right? I saw Candace Owens speak to the San Diego County yeah. Republican Party at the Town and Country, if that's any indication yeah. of what, where it stands and it, things. It was the default place for yeah. all the conservative movements, the Taxpayers Association, the Republican Party to meet. And that's not, that's, it'd be one thing if that's just where they met at the event. But C. Terry Brown, yeah. the owner of the Town and Country, was like a really big deal in Republican politics as well. Like he would fund causes, he would help organize things like the Lodging Industry Association or different opposition to taxes or other, and a lot of it was centered on opposing unions. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard that the workers at the town and country had formed a union, I was like, wow, what's happened at this hotel that this has happened? I wanted to understand. So I asked her, Bridget Browning, and she not only leads the Labor Council, she still leads the Hotel Workers Union that did this. And I asked her what happened and how that was able to happen at the Town and Country Hotel, and here's what she said. Uh, so in the hotel industry, what, when I first started working in the 90s, it, there were still local owners, but they've almost gone away, and it's really become corporate entities. Mostly it's... Uh, pension money that's buying most of these hotels, and that's exactly what happened in the town and country. Uh, Terry Brown owns a very small percentage of it, and it's almost all pension fund money. And so through a, a corporate strategy where we pressured friendly electeds that sit on pension funds, we were able to get an agreement to let the workers organize. So what she's saying there is these guys used to own hotels here locally, just the C. Terry Browns and the Bill Evanses or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and that now so many of these hotels are owned by these corporate entities and pension funds that she and her colleagues are pressuring to be more neutral in these discussions and that that is having a big impact on their uh, workers' ability to get organized into unions. And I guess she's also implying that both they're not as worried about the unionization uh, from a bottom line perspective, but also that they have actual allies who are in ownership now who run these pension funds. I asked her if it was if 
if it was more important though to you know the town and country also developed a, a whole bunch of its land into into homes right. and they needed permission from the city to do that and i and a lot of people assumed that that was a, a leverage point that the unions used to kind of help the organizing effort. You're going to need entitlements from the city to go through with this project. We have and a lot at this of, point, we can say if, you know, if, if this, then that. Right. We have a lot of influence at City Hall. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we can help you do that if you are more neutral on this debate. She said that, yeah, that was important too. But this, this corporate ownership situation was more important. There's an interesting like meta story there in just the like waning influence of local City Hall politics in the first place if, if if it's like look the way ownership structures of these hotels are going our pursuit of support is not best achieved through city hall it's going way above city hall to the to the corporate ownership structures of these uh, of these national corporations it's 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 well wasn't that long bit, ago remember yeah. when when the chargers were trying to get their stadium and they created the whole idea of a hotelier's cabal yeah, like this yeah. this group of people well they didn't create it they kind of jumped on, on board of that idea that there was this shadow power yeah. structure that ran city politics and it was hoteliers themselves yeah. Yeah. and i think what she's saying is there's a lot of lightning bolt avatars on twitter telling <laughs> us like well the the hoteliers like that yeah. they managed to get like that message right. infiltrated. They didn't know the word hotelier until <laughs> it was part of this discussion. Yeah. And the and what I think she's saying is like, yeah, you might need to change the idea that there's a group of there's still obviously hotel owners. Yeah. But that there's a group of them now that are still a concentrated power influence interest group at City Hall is is changing. Yeah. And I mean I think this wasn't the first we've heard of this. Uh you know the even predating my time at voice there was a i don't know how many times ago five times ago when the city tried to raise the hotel tax to build stuff uh they held a mail ballot election yeah only for people with ownership stake in the hotels that would be part of the new taxed district yes weighted and by how big they were yeah how by yeah by how many like rooms they had basically right. And I remember uh, now LA Times reporter Liam Dillon was like trying to figure out who is voting in this election. Yeah. Like literally wh who are the people voting in the election? And it was like, it was all like, uh, like LLCs in Delaware. Yeah. You know, like there was, it wasn't, there weren't 25 different people who owned yeah. hotels in San Diego. It was all these like faceless corporations. Well, speaking of, of leverage. So Browning also had a moment, we put this on the site too, where she talked about the SDSU Mission Valley Development, the stadium, there's supposed to be a hotel there, mm -hmm. lots of homes, parks, uh, this innovation district, um, research center for the university, and 4,600 homes, to be clear, for uh, some for students, from some for faculty, and then some just straight up sell and, and rent at market rates. And um, I asked her about this because she had had this famous blow up notorious blow up with uh, uh, one of the leaders of that project, Jack McGrory, on our page. And I, I was like, is there any fallout? What do you still think about that? And she said this. Um, I still believe very firmly that had the city been allowed to do a process like they're doing for the sports arena, the city would have gotten a much better project than they currently have at SDSU West. Um, I don't think most of the public understand that SDSU West is almost entirely private development. Like, I think we were sold a bill of goods that it was going to be student housing, faculty housing, lecture halls, and a stadium, and that's absolutely not the case. Um, I still have a very bad taste in my mouth about what happened with that, and I think it was a big mistake that we didn't do an organized effort to, to vote it down. Okay, so to be clear, not only did they not do an organized effort to vote it down, the unions were a key reason this all got going in USDSU's direction in the first place. They jumped aboard and supported what became Measure G really early in the whole situation. Yeah, I would even, even before there was anything, before there was Measure G, before there was even STSU West, when there was Soccer City, this like private attempt to sort of force the city to sell it to them through a ballot measure, um, they tried to sew up union support early on and when they failed was basically the end of that project's hopes 
Mm-hmm. And then the, the union. Yeah, you can take on big business, you can take on labor, and you can take on like neighbors. But my whole thing was like, you can't take on all three. All three. Yeah. They, I mean, yeah. they had no friends in the yeah. end. It was like Scott Sherman, I think. Yeah. <laughs> no, or no, not not even. It no, was, it was Sherman. Yeah. And, and, and the Faulkner. Yeah. But the mayor was like, yeah. Yeah, he didn't want to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> so like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the unions opposed the alternative project. They supported the SDSU West project. So they were like a far cry from right. campaigning against the SDSU project. Uh, now that said, like, I, I agree with her that I don't think people have a clear understanding that like that development project is basically just a private development project although not for lack of trying on our end yeah a lot of people (laughs) pointed this out relentlessly that they were and they were very open like we are partnering with private developers but we're going to build us stuff and then they get to build their own stuff yeah no 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 like when asked the people associated with that project happily said that that was the case they Mm -hmm. they they were not deceptive about it Mm -hmm. i do think that it's case that that hasn't like set in for most people yeah or, a lot of people, people aren't think it's attention. just the university's it's, second campus yeah exactly i i think one of the revealing parts about this is that she likes what's happening at sports arena where the city has 50 acres of land it's developing as opposed to like 140 or whatever yeah and that's all private development too oh yeah sure right and so what she's yeah, well, look the, the city doesn't build housing like it's and when it just, when it, just to, the the state doesn't either even like when the, it funds it it lets private developers right to build it. just like dissuade yourself from any sort of belief that like there's a world right now as this government structure exists where we directly build things that doesn't happen right that the, the entire that's the only way things develop in this country no it doesn't have to be right. people could make like herculean changes right. to our structure but until unless and until that happens even when we it's build all private even development. when we build the government buildings it's yeah. a private develop like yeah. the navy built its corporate headquarters by making a deal with a private developer is going to get a lot of that land and right. when the city builds its new city hall it's gonna it's gonna get a developer to build a new city hall in exchange for getting to build something else. Right. So you might not like that, in which case you support changing all of this, but that's the way it works right, right. now. So, so what yeah. she's really saying there yeah. is that we wanted more of a say right. before this was approved so that we can get more out of it. And she would say that's for the betterment of of the working class, that people would make more money, would get better benefits, and that would help everything in the community and that's what you should care about and they would say she wants it because of her own interests and she wanted to squeeze them to 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 deliver more but that i think is a a a reveal a revealing of what she will you know insist upon in the future and if she has the influence and power to to get it she'll get it so we have a, a relatively light uh, election slate in front of us this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the one open city council seat that is up for grabs right now is District 6, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that it's currently held by a Republican, and both of the people running for it now are Democrats. And assuming all of the other incumbents win their seats, that means that we'll have a fully Democratic city council in a few months. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing and is that that's interesting is District 6 has been drawn in the previous election cycle and in this most recent redistricting cycle as an Asian empowerment district. Uh, it is intended to create a plurality of voters that will uh, ensure the representation of the AAPI community that is largely concentrated there, although it is exist throughout the city uh, so that they will be a voice for those interests in city decision making. Yeah, this just goes back decades. We've talked about this in, in different podcasts. Uh, yeah, before Chris Kate was elected to that seat, it had been many decades since there'd been an Asian American elected to that seat. Right. And so now there are two candidates, Tommy Howe, a longtime environmentalist, former radio show, brunch with Bob and friends mm-hmm. guy yeah. uh, on 91X, was it? Mm-hmm. And then Kent Lee, who is uh, leader of the PAC Arts mm-hmm. movement and the um, Asian Film Festival and uh, a lot of different nonprofit causes like that. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's supported by labor and 
business and Democrats and a lot of Republicans too. Right. And so Jesse Marks, who was moderating the debate, mentioned that this is a, this is a drawn as an Asian empowerment district, that it is the, the largest concentration of API people in the city of San Diego and asked, you know, what that sort of representation means. And Kentley uh, responded that he sort of chastised his opponent, Tommy Howe, who is white, um, for saying at a previous debate um, that there was no need for an Asian empowerment district because we were already an Asian empowerment city um, after, because after all, Todd Gloria is elected as the mayor and that he is uh, part Filipino. Um, and so they, they went back and forth on that a couple of times and then they had this exchange. Can too many follow? Yeah, I think if that's the case, uh, I would simply ask my opponent to uh, not tokenize that representation at the end of the day. I mean, just th the fact that our mayor is one quarter Filipino does not see mean that suddenly API representation from a city of San Diego standpoint box checked already done. Do we not all think it's a marvelous thing that we have a mayor who is of API descent? I mean, I think that's that's tremendous. And it's it's not a, a, a you know, some sort of dismissal of District 6. I mean, uh, District 6 is absolutely an Asian empowerment district. It was designed to be that way. But the city is indeed an Asian empowerment city. Uh, so, look, this is, you know, thorny stuff, uh, especially for two white guys like us to talk about. <laughs> and uh, we're aware of that. But. The way the the nine seat city council that we have right now is drawn has taken as like a starting point for a while that there will be a couple empowerment seats. And now, like I am beginning to wonder how long that's going to be able to hold or how long um, other interests aren't going to subsume that that thinking. Um, because look, what Tommy Howe has said here, about District 6 being an Asian empowerment district, the the logic of that is identical to what you could say about District 3 being an LGBTQ empowerment seat because, after all, Todd Gloria is also gay. So does that mean D3... If, if D6 doesn't need to be an Asian empowerment district because of who the mayor is, does that mean that District 3 no longer needs to be an LGBTQ Q empowerment district um, and what do we say about district four uh, which has always been the, the historic seat of black uh, political power in San Diego but black people in district four are not the largest racial group uh, it's not even the second largest racial group and and so as that as those sorts of demographic trends keep changing and the city as a whole continues to change its political bent I just wonder how long these districts are going to be able to continue to hold the line as empowerment districts. Mm -hmm. And I think the the crass sort of discussion about it can reach a level of uh, inappropriateness and actual racism like it did in L.A. we're seeing now. Yeah. I, I haven't seen a, a, a local city council scandal with a blast radius as big as this one in a long time like this is huge. It's huge and it's and it's all based on a crass and racist discussion about these very concepts and it's it's like it's it's fascinating to see uh it being kind of like uh, up front discussed and i think one thing that the city has done well in contrast to la is to let an independent commission handle these discussions in public uh, and 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 to debate and to handle these map and redistricting problems in public and yeah it'll be it'll be fascinating to see in the next decade how that turns out. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break. We've got more Politifest coming up on the other side. Stay with us. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. 
Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Are you looking to engage with regional decision makers, business leaders, elected officials, and industry professionals committed to improving downtown San Diego? Join the Downtown San Diego Partnership. As a member, you'll receive access to exclusive resources, exposure to special programming, networking functions, and additional opportunities unmatched by any other local membership-based organization. Join the driving forces behind the future of downtown San Diego. For a 10% discount, become a member today. Okay, then we got to the the end of the day, and Lisa Halverstadt, a reporter uh, on homelessness and, and city issues, held a discussion with Mayor Todd Gloria, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria, and County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. And I feel like they both said some really interesting things that I didn't quite pick up on as I was listening to it live. I have a lot of trouble listening to people for some reason. I really yeah, no, have to remind I've, myself. I've noticed that. Okay. So, but as I reviewed the conversation, there was a feeling in what Todd Gloria was saying where he's sick of it. He doesn't like how this conversation about homelessness is going. And he's kind of tired of us. And I don't mean voice of San Diego, but the people who have this conversation about what are we doing yeah. in general. Right. Largely us in some way. We're included in that. Yeah. We're, we're a subset of the group of people he's tired of. So here was, so Lisa said, what are we doing? Is this ever going to get better? How are we going to get out of, uh, you know, see some improvement in this situation? Yeah, the sort of wild question that's been asked of me by literally every single person I know who doesn't work in government. It's the only thing they ask me. And I, I'm always like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. know what to say to people, my own family, my neighbors, my uh, my, or even people I might encounter. Like, what what's going to happen? And here is uh, here's Todd Gloria. So this was after already an hour of discussion, and he and he he kind of let some of that out about how frustrating it is. But when you see me advancing community plan updates, blueprint SD homes for all of us, housing action package, uh, the, the Midway Sports Arena redevelopment, Civic Center redevelopment, you see we're trying to tackle this to scale, and I need your help, not your criticism. I need you to pick up an oar and start rowing with me, not tweeting at me. Just stop for a second. I want to finish this quote for a second, but I need your help, not your criticism. I need you to pick up and start to row with me not tweet at me and acting like that. Like uh, the, the act of, of asking this or, or being critical of solutions or non-solutions is, is, is starting to cross a line for it. I mean, acting like that this is okay. It's not okay. I'm the first to acknowledge it, but we can do something about it. And again, over 1,200 people in our city last year was able to go through the system and get housed permanently. The problem is, is that we don't know the data of how many people entered homelessness, but it is surely more than that. And until we get that ratio inverted, we're going to continue to have the crisis that's here. But no one is playing small ball out here. We are swinging in the fences. That was a sports reference, guys, that I just gave Okay, let me just, I'm going to go ahead and take the sports reference to the next level. So he's talking about, small ball is bunting and stealing bases. Yeah, his, his baseball metaphor works perfectly well. I'm worried about what you're going to do with it. No, you use small ball when you're <laughs> yeah. trying to get something done in, in like a like a urgent situation. Like you, you, you bunt, you steal, you try to make something happen when something, when you are like actually losing or when you're in trouble. And I think like that, I don't think he's thinking that deeply about it's fine what he's saying. Mm -hmm. But I, I actually do think 
what he's saying with all of this is very close to we're doing everything we can. You need to stop criticizing us. He literally says that. Yeah. And come aboard with what we're doing because there's nothing more we can do. Yeah. And it's it's like it's so suggesting that something that that there's a different path or that there's something more that could be done is what he's opposing. And he's mad that it keeps coming up that there's something better or a different path here. And I feel like that's fraught. Yeah. Well, I think saying something very similar in a different way is he's um, he's looking at the like the control panel of all the buttons he thinks he can press, everything that's available. And he's like, I'm pressing all of the buttons. What do you want? And somebody else is out there outside of the control room seeing no difference. Worse. As far as they're concerned, no buttons are being pressed at all because the situation isn't getting any better. And they're they're running into the control room and going, it's getting even worse out there. What are you guys doing? And he's saying, what do you want from me? I'm pressing all the buttons. And I just think it's reasonable for somebody out in the real world to say, I don't care about the buttons that are being pressed. I want to see results and I haven't to the extent that I've seen anything change. It's only gotten worse, not better. And so I, I can understand his frustration. I, if, if you're in that situation and you genuinely feel like you are pulling all of the levers and pressing all of the buttons, I am sure that it is, that is immensely frustrating, but like that's at a level of frustration. You communicate to your colleagues who are also in the control room and are living with that same that same like lack of progress that you are in spite of feeling like you're doing everything you can it's odd to take that concern public to say you know i'm updating community plans and i'm passing blueprint sd and homes for all and he brought up the sports arena again as as, an, a, a, as a part of the homeless solution yeah which it isn't uh, I mean, it's yeah. We've we've gone yeah, through that gone bit, through that. but it's still but, fascinating. That it keeps coming up, right? And like, and 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 again, that is not to say that those things that you're doing, community plan updates and blueprint SD and midway are are bad or are contributing to the problem, or that there's a way to do them magically that would address these problems. It's just that, like, it, for lack of a better way of saying it, it's like your problems are your problems, man. And you know, like. To, to shift from the a baseball meta, metaphor to like a city infrastructure metaphor, I think about during the Faulkner era, the most pressing concern, the thing that pulled the best or the worst was streets, potholes, right? And the mayor's response all the time was to talk about how many miles of road they were repaving. We're repaving a hundred miles of road, or every some year. meaningless number about how much they were spending. How, how much they were spending more than ever. We're yeah. spending more than ever. We're repaving more roads than ever. And what you know, nerds like us and Liam Dillon used were constantly, you know, bleeding on about was all you're doing is not even enough to keep the problem from getting worse. You have you're talking past the problem by ignoring the denominator and just screaming louder at louder and louder volumes about the numerator. But if you look at the problem, you're 100 miles of road repaving a year. Well, 120 miles fall below the stand, you know, the, the standard every year. And so the problem is getting worse. You're hundred miles. That might sound like a big number to somebody who doesn't know what's going on, but it, it, it not only is it not making things better, it's not even, Slow, it's not even helping them from getting worse, right? It, or it's only keeping them getting he, worse. He, in this quote, and he admits, says the same thing. Yeah. He said, we housed 1,200 people. That 1,200 people is the 100 miles of road. And he says, we don't have the data to know how many people became homeless at that same time, but it's probably more. Well, exactly. That's the thing. Like, that equation is the thing that anybody who lives in the city cares about. And telling them that, like, you're doing community plan updates is asking them to like look past the material reality in their face to understand how hard you're pressing the buttons available to you. Yeah. And like it's an unreasonable request to ask act people to shift to shift their priorities to grade you on 
from that perspective. Especially when it's unacceptable. Yeah. When it's when it's people suffering, when it's disease, when it's all of what we see and it's getting worse, you can't just say it's we're doing everything and 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 we're doing it as fast as we can and you need to come help. Well, and especially like passing community plan updates, I'm sorry, that's like replacement level. That's an expectation. That's government churning. That's the wheels of this system doing what they're supposed yeah, to do. Yeah, regardless of how well it's been done in the past, okay, you're doing we, we expect you level. to do that. Yeah. We expect you to do that. Like this the the rest is something that's supposed to 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 pile up above those things. Right. And yeah, in a 30-50 year timeline having community plans that are up to date and uh matched with our need will over time and it, I, I stress it is like over time that community plans result in housing. It is decades. It, decades. Like it the is, Barrio Logan community plan is going to have impact on the housing situation there, the new one, yeah. in like 25 years. Yeah. It's a, it is a long-term process, which is, again, not to say that you shouldn't do it, but to offer it as like a, a you know, a, a example of, of how you've done everything in your, in your power to address the situation on the street right now. Like I'm community well, plans do not act that way. It's acting and implying that you need to be okay with the way it is yeah. and how bad it's going to get into an unforeseeable perpetuity. Lisa asked about enforcement there. Cause there's all this push to like get, get these people pushed out of the street, pushed off the street. And Nathan Fletcher, who was there had this to say about that. And I, I would just add to that. I think the, you know, the challenge is, you can put it in place whatever this many feet from here or there. You still gotta have places to take people, right? And if you have places where you can take them, then you can enforce, right? And and you should, right? I mean, I you know I don't think there's this fundamental right to put you ten on the sidewalk, but if there's nowhere else for you to go, that becomes a challenge. And so a lot of these efforts that you discussed are just about pushing people a little further away, where a lot of folks will, will have, won't see it as much. But it's not getting to the root of the issue. I think one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that the urgency and the acceptability of this needs to be shaken up. And the Bill Walton flare-up wasn't quite right, but it feels like we're still heading towards more moments like it where the reality becomes just completely unacceptable to people here and to the homeless here, that it can't continue like this. And I look back, history is full of these moments. We have dealt with this. I watched a, a documentary about Edinburgh in Scotland. And they, in, after the Industrial Revolution, they, they, it got crowded with so many people that there was cholera and other feces-borne diseases and just problems of just immense proportion. And they had to invent the modern sewage system. And they had to invent tenement housing. And they had to completely retrofit the city to deal with it. San Diego in the 40s and 50s had massive homelessness in Mission Valley, just massive tracts of land that were filled with people living in tents and trailers and in and, and unstable and unsafe and unhealthy environments. And we retrofitted and added different things. It is not, it, it's, it's, nobody's talking right now about what the retrofit is now. What are we going to do that's this big that fixes this problem? And I feel like if we treated it like it was unacceptable, we would treat it the way we might if a tsunami hit San Diego and displaced thousands of people and it sent us into a commotion. We would, we would every day be hearing about a group of people meeting to get resources, to figure out what to do temporarily, to triage and permanently to help people. And we would you know, the mayor wouldn't go to Europe. I don't care that he went to Europe. I don't, you know, if you get to be mayor, that sounds like a cool part of it to go every once in a while on these trips representing your city. But if a tsunami had just hit, he wouldn't have gone. And they're not treating it that way. Mm -hmm. They're not treating it like it's an acute emergency. They're treating it like it's a long-term problem. You just have right to- Right there in the name, the opposite of acute, chronic. It's a chronic, it's chronic existing problem that may get worse for a while until these community plans and the Midway District kick in. Yeah. And it's like, that is what's being presented as fundamentally unacceptable right now. 
And that's where they're pushing the buttons. And you've got to come in and say, like, as a leader, you need to go and figure out what other buttons there are to push, what other resources you can bring to bear on this problem. And if you can't, that's where you say, like, okay, somebody else needs to. But this is where they could stop with the stop criticizing and tweeting thing and say things like, yeah, I don't know what to do right now. What are we going to do? What could we do to triage this situation? Could we open up a bunch of safe parking lots and safe camping spots immediately? That's what Supervisor Fletcher talked about. Could we, could we literally condemn hotels right now and get people into them? Could we create uh, and then help people get in out of these, these situations? What emergency things might we do? If we saw a tsunami here, what kind of temporary facilities would be built to take care of people? And I and I and that's what they're not accepting is even a, a place they can go. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that the his like at base, I think that comment is is saying that there's nothing he can do. Yeah, and and that's that comes up and in, and, in and if that's what it is, then like I I mean I I guess I'm I'm not ready to believe that that's the case, but if that is what they think, I. I would appreciate just saying it. Yeah. But 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 I do think that that's sort of what we're edging towards. No, like th- that there's nothing at the city level that we can genuinely do that changes the situation that you're looking at. It's the subtext of all of their public statements yeah. about this. When they responded to Bill Walton, the first or second thing they said is this is a problem everyone's dealing with. Right. And it's like, fine. What do they <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. Like it's it's like when the school district says, "Well, everybody's failing English." We're doing a little bit better than them. Well, that's not good either. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to triage it? And, you know, that's what they, what underneath all of it is, is like, there's nothing we can do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's just, that's, that's hard to swallow. And, and if you want to go there, that's okay. But maybe somebody else has a, has a different perspective. We have all of the content from Pluto. There's some great debates about uh, all kinds of things from the height limit to the county assessor's race, which was spicy. Uh, Go to politifest.org. That's politifest.org to catch up on everything. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this area of San Diego, which puts on a public affairs summit of such high quality. It's the most popular public affairs podcast that does all that. You can keep up with all of our news and insights with The Morning Report, our most popular product. Get that at vosg.org slash morning. And you can see all of the news we're writing that came out of PolitiFest at politifest.org. That's politifest.org. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrew Keats is Managing Editor. And Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.